Good morning, church. Today's scripture is Romans 8, verses 28 through 35. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Good morning. Let me be quick to acknowledge uh, this weekend is Memorial Day weekend. I uh, want to say thank you to those who are serving, those who have served our country. Uh, I know there are several families in here. Air Force family, so thank you for your service on this weekend, and we, we pray for you, we are grateful for you. Thank you. This weekend begins the, uh, the unofficial start of summer in other places. <laughs> when I was in Maryland, we would, this would be the, the opening of cookout season, fish fries, and those kinds of things, so I'm grateful for that. Grateful for that culture. Grateful for summer. Uh, this morning, we'll spend some time in, in a text that is, I think, very foundational for the Reformed faith, but also very challenging for all of us. I'll open up in a word of prayer. Before I do that, if you need a Bible, would you kindly slip up your hands? The, usher will, the ushers will come up and give you a Bible. We preach from the Bible here. We like to do that. I think that's very good. Just raise your hand. We'll get you a Bible. Um, we don't preach from anything else, so you can follow along if you need a Bible. I'll be walking through. I'll see one hand up here. Thank you, Justin. Thank you, ushers. Uh, if you need one, please raise your hand. I say this often, but I want you to hear me. Every time I, I, I preach, God uses, I feel like, the Word of God, not through me of my study, but the Holy Spirit. And I do this because I have been called, in a sense, to preach the Word of God. James chapter 3, verses 1 says, Not many of us should strive to be teachers because teachers will be judged more harshly. 
whenever I read, whenever I start to study and prepare, I always keep that verse in mind, knowing that this, in the next 30 minutes, what I'm going to do or attempt to do, I will be judged more strictly for. And that is a heavy weight to carry. So I would appreciate your help in less carrying our weight this morning. So let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for your wisdom in these words. Lord, I thank you for what you have given us in the scriptures to help guide us in this life. To help show us and, 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 and make a pathway for us to you, O oh Lord. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for the ability to gather each other um, to hear your word preached. Because faith comes through hearing. Heavenly Father, I pray you begin to just work in the hearts and minds of those in this room, create fertile soil. We thank you, Lord. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Believers in Jesus were beginning to scatter all over the known world at the time. Jews and Gentiles were in community together, albeit tension-filled community, in the city of Rome. Rome was the center of the known world at the time, the most powerful nation on, in the known world at the time. And so Paul, the guy who wrote this letter, wrote this letter that we call a book now, the book of Romans, wrote this letter to the church. It was a fledgling church in the city of Rome. Paul is the author of this letter. He's writing to Jesus' followers who are having a hard time settling in the city of Rome. The emperors of Rome have been kicking them out of the cities, and basically they were subjected to frequent disagreements with governments. The letter that we call the book of uh, Romans now is divided into 16 chapters for our reading, and right in the middle is where we are. Kind of the pinnacle of the argument is in chapter 8 is where we are today. This little group of believers are gathering frequently together to hear about Jesus. The letter is written about 30 years after the death of Jesus, and they do not really have the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They don't really have a copy of the Old Testament, the Scriptures. So all they might have had was this. And so when Paul writes this, he is giving them hope in what Jesus has done for them. He calls them the saints in Rome. Urban life, in this sense, is in full swing, right? People are living in close proximity to each other, businessmen, politicians, people who are pursuing knowledge. All features of a normal city were present in Rome. We can imagine that in this church, in this gathering, there are many officials, there are pilgrims, there are sightseers, there are runaway slaves, there are fugitives, there are prisoners, there are athletes, there are artisans, there are teachers, students. All these people are in this group of people, uh, in this church, hearing this word. The main idea of this letter is that despite our sin, our self-doubt, our suffering and uncertainty, nothing can separate us from the love of God. It was a reminder to them and a reminder to us today when we hear and read this that there's much more to God's love than we can ever see or imagine. This passage has a lot of hyperbole, which is a word that I learned from Mr. Gaussman in 11th grade, and I love it. Mr. Gaussman, thank you, buddy. 
It has a lot of language that tries to capture the concepts that language have trouble, languages have trouble capturing. Promises that seem too good to be true. Some of it are reassuring, some of it is thought-provoking, and some of it is going to challenge our view of God, our view of our neighbors, our view of ourselves, and our view of our circumstances. Anybody watch late-night TV? Don't raise your hand. I used to be a big fan of late-night TV. Matter of fact, a lot of the time I would fall asleep and leave the TV on. Especially when I was in college. You know, you're unsupervised. You can, you can watch as much TV as you want. Sports Center is on a loop. They're just going. They're just going. They're saying the same thing about every sport, every hour. But I will often wake up in the middle of the night to what <laughs> Americans call infomercials. Some of these infomercials would promise things that were too good to be true. Buy this pillow, and you will not have any trouble sleeping again, right? It's a classic commercial. You see it. The guy's in black and white, or the gal's in black and white, and he's flipping his pillow and fixing it, trying to fix it, and he's laying down, and it's in black and white, and all of a sudden, 30 seconds later, it goes to, it goes to color, and he's got this new pillow. His life all of a sudden is improved, right? And magically, life has changed. The whole life is in color, right? Your sleep apnea is gone. Your snoring is gone. And they always said this as a hook. But wait, there's more. If you order this pillow, we will send you five more pillows. <laughs> right? But wait, there's more. We'll send you bed sheets, mattress covers, eye masks. But wait, there's more. If you order it in the next 10 minutes, by this time something's blinking on the screen, Right? You will get this for three payments of $19.99. A sense of urgency has been created. I ordered some of those pillows. <laughs> and I was very disappointed. <laughs> My life was already in color. When we read the words of God, when we read the promises of God, it can feel like that. Right? It can feel like, what do I need to do? Do I need to do something? Do I, is my credit good enough to make this call? Can I take this promise of God and make it mine? Our passage today contains some promises, but it also contains some theological truths that, we often, that often forces us to question God. We'll begin with the questions, then finish with the promises this morning. I have titled this sermon this morning, But Wait. There is more. If you have a Bibles, I'm in Romans chapter 8, verses 28 to 39. I'm going to start with verse 29 and we'll go back to 28. When you read verse 29, it says a couple of words that need to be unpacked. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn born among many brothers. When we hear the words chosen, predestined, we think who is chosen? Why is there predestination? Is God, the, is God on a cosmic playground choosing people based on their height, their looks, their jumping ability, their, writing, their running ability, their eye color, their beauty or what? If you are like me, you're on one end of the spectrum thinking, if God is choosing, I'm a good athlete. 
He's going to choose me first. But if you're, if you're one of those kids on the playground that didn't have any athletic ability or you're in this life and you're thinking, I don't, have, I don't see anything special about myself, you're like, if God is choosing, how, what is he using to choose? Upon what? Is he like every other person in charge who is making the choice based on looks? Am I going to get picked first? Am I going to get picked at all? This verse challenges our value and the view of fairness of God because we can infer from this that there are people who are chosen and that there are some that are not. Some are predestined for eternal life and some are predestined for eternal death. The Reformed view of this comes through many theologians. Early church fathers have all wrestled with this. Pelagius, Augustine, and later on Martin Luther and even John Calvin all wrestled with the idea of, is God choosing people or do we have a say in our eternal destiny? Contemporary theologian Millard Erickson says this. He, he summarizes this. I need you to hear this. He says, there's really no answer to the question of how God decides who will receive his grace and who will be left in their sinful condition. He simply chooses as he pleases. There is, however, no injustice in this. For justice would result in God's condemning all. It is only by an act of great compassion that he saves anyone. The condemned just receive what they deserve. The elect receive more than they deserve. Because God stands outside of time the concept of foreknowledge is alien to him. There's a lot there. If our fate is already settled, what does it do? What does it do for us to pursue morality, for to pursue good? Right? John Calvin says this: the doctrine of predestination does not lead to carelessness in morality, to a cavalier attitude that we can continue to sin since our election is sure. Rather, knowledge of our election leads us to pursue a holy life. It is clear that God predestines. Who he chooses and why is something that exceeds human capacity to understand. In Romans 9, Paul gives this great example of Jacob. He said, God says, Jacob, I loved. Esau, I hated. We don't know why or how, but how can we rest assured that he is just and he is merciful because God is just and he is merciful. 2 Peter, 8, 2 Peter uh, 3 verses 8 and 9 brings me a lot of comfort when I start sitting on a couch and thinking this through. It says this, but do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with God one day is, at a, is, at, is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. This forces us to pit God's sovereignty versus God's love. And that's a false dichotomy. It forces us to, to think through, Lord, are you, are, am I called? Am I faithful? Is it up to you? Is it up to you? Can I do anything about this? Do, do, do you love me? If it is God's choice to have the sun rise tomorrow, my brothers and sisters, there's nothing you and I can do about it. He is in charge. 
God is God. He is the beginning and the end, and we are not. It should be incredibly comforting to us that he has chosen to give all of us life and boundaries and hope in eternity. What is kind of shaking your world right now as I'm talking about it should actually bring great comfort to you. If you are prone to control, this can bring some anxiety, and I understand. God calls, he justifies, and he will glorify. There is a familiar painting, a very familiar painting. If you grew up in a church, you've seen this painting. If you've been around church people, have been in church basements, <laughs> coffee mug, bookmark, prayer schedule, Bible reading, all those things, sometimes they'll have this picture. What do you notice? Let me just state the obvious. It looks like Jesus is from Norway or Sweden. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Go beyond that. Right? This is, I, wanted to, I wanted to capture that picture from the past. This is not from Norway or Sweden. We know that. This picture actually has a theological message. Jesus is knocking, but there is no handle for him to open the door. From the inside, we respond. All over the Bible we read, you can take that picture down now, thank you. <laughs> it's triggering, right? <laughs> All over the Bible we read, God initiating with man. God initiating with us. God initiated and called Abraham, who was a pagan, out of Ur. He did the same thing with Jonah. Jesus does the same thing with his disciples. God calls. He initiates. The story of the Bible is God initiating with us. Not a case to worry, but a case for comfort. There is some theology out there, by the way, that asserts that once Jesus comes into your heart, your days of suffering are over. Your days of questioning are over. Right? Some people will argue that once Jesus comes into your life, once he enters in, then you're, 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 you're good, right? You're good. You can, you, can, you, can, you, can, you, can you can rest. You can start enjoying life once Jesus comes into your life. You can start Cupid shuffling your way to heaven. Verse 28 says this, right? Verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. This verse can help us through, but it can also be used in a way that actually hamstrings people's growth. Some people will use this verse, I think, out of context and out of, the, out of context for the rest of the chapter to help people feel better. When you're going through something, somebody can say this verse to you and be like, it's going to be okay. God, you got it. You got, it's going to work out. Our temptation to want to make people feel better actually ends up hamstringing them, like I said. When something, terribly happen, when something terrible happens to someone we, know, uh, someone, someone we know or love, our temptation is to want to make them feel better, want to restore their faith in God. This verse, this line that Paul is saying, 
through the Roman church, he's trying to tell them that suffering is a part of the journey. The absence of suffering in your life does not mean you are any way closer to God than other people who are suffering. If you think of Jesus, who was as close to God as possible as can be, he suffered. He was crucified. His disciples were all killed because of their faith, all except for one. The church in Rome, that this letter is being read to them, when they're hearing this, they're in for a surprise. They're in for some suffering. They're under, like I said, they're under Caesar, right? A powerful, a powerful emperor who's ruling more, more of the world than people could imagine. The people in the church want to give their allegiance to Jesus when the empire is calling. Believers were often beaten, killed in gruesome ways, right? Verse, verse, verse 28, I think, if you read it out of context, can short-circuit someone's discipleship or someone's growth, right? It's a mostly earthly, immediate view that we, we see this verse in. If you've been through so much suffering, someone will say this to you, right? That means your blessing is coming. We must be careful for we must be careful in interpreting the scripture as a transaction between us and God. In a sense that, man, if I suffer enough, at some point God's gonna bless me, right? It's gonna happen because I've suffered enough. We won't always understand or enjoy the things we experience here on earth, but they pale in comparison to what is to come. That theology just tells someone. That everything is going to be all right despite because of their suffering, they're going to earn some kind of reward here on earth. It's incorrect and it's very hurtful. As a refugee, people would say things to me like, you know, you have suffered enough, boy. God's going to bless you, right? You're 11, you're an orphan, blessings are coming. And I took that to mean, man, at some point, it's going to work out. The presence, of your God, the presence of God in your life does not equate to the absence of poverty. It does not equate to the absence of sickness or hardships because those things are a result of sin in this world. It's even quoted in non-Christian circles. People say, oh, everything's going to work out for good. One theologian says it this way. He says, if our chief aim in knowing God is human comfort, that's not Christianity. That's evolutionary optimism which is far from what we believe. When I arrived in the United States in March of 1993, I remember sitting on the couch, right, two weeks in. Right? If you haven't, you, you guys have probably never experienced this. But when you get to America for the first time, it is like, oh, whoa. I'm sitting on the couch. I'm flipping channels. I'm eating lasagna. All you can eat meals. I'm just, I'm like, this is what they were talking about. The suffering is over. You know, and I come to the States, I'm going to, it can't get any better than this. But then, as I stayed, I realized there's crime, there's poverty, there's hardship, there's struggle, there's relational tension. All those things start to show up in your life around you. You see that the promises were short-circuited. Then I began to question God. I thought, I thought my suffering was over. If you've been there, you know what I'm talking about. If you were, if you were promised a, good of, a, a bill of goods that said, once you accept Jesus Christ into your heart, everything is going to be done, that's not it. Once you have been called, once you have been 
you, you've been into the family of Jesus, everything's going to work out economically for you, socially, relationally, and everything's going to be fine. That's not true. There is much more, Paul is saying. In verses 31 through 35, Paul writes in a way that is meant to catch your attention. In the first few verses, he uses the word and, right, to, 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 to illustrate that there's more. Jesus says who he's called, he's predestined, who he's called, he's justified, and, 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 and he's glorified. One of the most powerful tools of communication that we have is the ability to ask great questions. If you encounter somebody, by the way, who's asking questions all the time, you think it can be frustrating, but I want you to stay with me. Verse 31. He asks seven consecutive questions. What then shall we say in, to these things? First question. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for all of us, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Another question. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Another question. It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God? Who indeed is interceding for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? Question upon question upon question upon question upon question to answer the question. He's question stacking. He's driving home a point to the readers and the hearers in Rome and to us. He's making a point. He's saying there's always more in Christ than outside of his will. In verses 33 and 34, he makes it explicit. He says, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Is it, God, is it not God who justifies who is to condemn? Don't raise your hand. If you've been to court before and it was serious enough that you needed a lawyer, don't raise your hand. The French word for lawyer is avocat, where we get, where we get advocate. Paul is painting a picture here of a courtroom, right? Normally, when one is accused, if the charge is serious enough, right, you bring a lawyer, you bring an advocate, you bring somebody to stand beside you, to represent you. An advocate understands the courtroom. He understands the system, he or she. Our sin has renders, rendered us guilty when we stand before God in the courtroom, when we stand before God. But because of God's grace and our faith, we are justified. Meaning the advocate that stands next to us understands the system and is actually going to take our punishment for us. The difference between our now courtroom and the legal courtroom that God is, that Peter is, uh, Paul is painting for us is that our legal system, we get a lawyer, and that lawyer will fight on your behalf. But here's the thing between our law, our law system, our legal system, and God's. When you face a fine or you go to jail, your lawyer now will go home. If we are guilty, our lawyer goes home, and we have to pay the fine, we go to jail, but not with God. He did not spare his own son, the Bible says. He gave him up for all of us. We all do not get what we deserve, the penalty for sin. He has taken on our punishment, and he died on the cross so that we can stand before God absolutely blameless and sinless one day. 
You know what we call that? We call that love. We call that God's everlasting love which is where this passage is trying to get you to, but it's boiling up to the surface. I hope it's coming to the surface now. This passage is about God's everlasting love for his children. There is always more to God's love than we can ever imagine. The Bible says in John 3, 16, as you know this, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall, shall live and have everlasting life. Just when you think God couldn't possibly give more, he does. He says to us, but wait, there's more. But wait, there's more. He has given us an advocate not only in the courthouse of life, but he has given us an advocate to walk through life with us. In John 14, Jesus says, I will send you an advocate to be with you forever. All this he predestined in his wisdom and foresight. The question is still hanging out there, though, right? If God is doing the choosing, what does that leave me? There are three ways you can look at this. I will start with, let me start with two. What I call the worker way we can look at this, what I call the cynic way we can look at this, and what I call the child's way we can look at this. To answer this question, if God is choosing, what does that leave me? What should be my response? If I'm questioning God's sovereignty versus God's love, what do I do with that? What's my response? The first way we're tempted to do it in our, in our modern Western time that we have so much control on so many things, right? We, we we're tempted to say, I'm going to work my way to make sure God chooses me. I'm going to volunteer as much as I can. I'm going to try to be sinless as best as I can. I'm going to try to be perfect. I'm going to give more. I'm going to serve more. I'm going to try to be good. I'm going to create what you're creating is your own resume that you hope will save you. What you are creating is a profile of yourself to say, if I do all of these things, there's no way God can turn me down. Because you imagine that God is standing on the playground and he's picking people and you're not going to get picked because if you don't serve, you don't give. What do I have to offer? I'm feeling some kind of way right now. <laughs> if God is choosing, I'm going to make sure that I do all I can so he chooses me. That's one extreme. This extreme, by the way, is so, is so handicapped in his thinking if you follow it through. That means every philanthropist on this earth, Oprah Winfrey is number one going to heaven. You get a car. I'll stop there. No. Because what about me? What about you? Who can't give a car? What about someone who's living in poverty? Does that mean God doesn't choose them because they don't work as hard? Absolutely not. The second way we, we're tempted to look at this is to be cynics. It's to not care. It's to say, if God is choosing, I'm not even going to try. So maybe he chooses, maybe he doesn't. I'm just going to live my life. I'm not going to try to do good. I'm not even going to try to do bad. I'm just going to be apathetic to the whole thing. Right? Just live. And I hope that I get picked. That's also a dead-end view. The third view, the view that I call the child's view, is complete surrender, complete trust, and complete love. Paul says, 
the gospel, he doesn't have, he's not ashamed of the gospel. In, in verse in chapter 1 and 16 says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel for salvation is for everyone who believes. To have childlike faith in the face of this is what changes. Paul answers these seven consecutive questions by using another word to draw our attention to God's love. This is what I call, call as I was getting ready, the oars and nors. But wait, right? Paul is saying, but wait, there is more. Verses 35, stay with me. I'll read 35, 37, 38, 39. 35 says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? By the way, Paul is listening to these things. All of these things he has suffered. That's why he's listening to those, right? Verse 37, he says, he answers the questions now. He says, no. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through whom he loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor death, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. If you stack all of these adverse situations, Paul is saying that nothing will separate us from the love of God in Jesus Christ. Neither this, nor that, nor that. He's not just saying, if you have this experience, and then this experience, and then this experience, he uses ors for that. But he uses nors to say, if these things were stacked together, you still could not be separated from the love of God. This is who we are. Nothing can touch us. Paul uses a great phrase to create a word picture in the minds of the original hearers in order. He says, we are more than conquerors. When he's talking to the folks in Rome who know what a conqueror look like, looks like, he's saying, imagine those generals that conquer these cities and towns and nation states. When they walk through the city, they are, they are granted. I don't know what that is. They are granted passage, and they're walking through the city, and they're pomp and circumstance, he says, you, you believers who have been called, you are more than that general. He cannot, Paul cannot possibly put into words how big God's everlasting, ever-present love is for us. Language isn't enough to capture what he has for you and I. Pick this up, ladies and gentlemen. Despite your sin, despite your inability not to sin, you will be more than conquerors. Right? Verses, uh, chapter, verse 1 says there's no condemnation in Christ Jesus. There is therefore no condemnation. Though you suffer, your sufferings in this present time are not going to be worth measuring to what is coming for you. You will gain a greater victory than even the most powerful general who ever lived. He says in verse 39, for I am sure that one who is in us has conquered death. Thank you, somebody. Our greatest enemy, God has conquered. God keeps telling us through Paul's writing here that, but wait, I have more for you. But wait, I have more. He says the ands in this passage, he says the ors in this passage, and he says the nors in this passage. There is more. There is more of God's love than we can ever imagine. Faith. 
it forces you to live, not just belief, but forces you in a direction of faith. Where you cannot control, where you have no idea what's going to happen. But God said, I got you. I got you. Every once in a while, I have this vision. I don't even want to call it a vision. Let's just call it a daydream. Uh, I have this daydream that I'm standing on a riverside, and there's a rushing river going from my left to my right, and it's brown, as you can tell, that, that there might have been some kind of storm or maybe snow melt or something, but it's rushing. All these rapids are going and going, and, and I'm standing at the edge of this, and I'm looking at this huge river, and I look down the stream. I can see there are two people hanging on branches. The first person is hanging on a branch, but this, this person, I, I don't know how to say this. Maybe it's not a church word, but I won't say it. He's swole, right? <laughs> he's chiseled, he's lean, he's buff, and he's holding on to a flimsy branch. His faith is strong. He's strong. But what he's holding on to is weak. And I look further down and I see an unswole person. Let's call him that, right? Kind of lanky, but he is holding on with comfort to a tree that is planted, that is strong. He's holding on. His faith is not strong. He's not strong, but he's holding on to something that is strong. Who's going to lose the battle? I always think of that. The problem is not for us to have big faith, but the object of our faith. Nothing will separate us from the love of God. Paul is assuring us that in this, right, nothing can come between God and us. He won't let you down, brothers and sisters. There is so much more that we could ever ask for or imagine in Jesus Christ. Would you bow your heads? Thank you, Heavenly Father, for your love that we can never lose. Heavenly Father, thank you for holding on to us giving us a path. Help us to live into your love for us. We are grateful. We are thankful. Lord, I pray that this word will find fertile ground in the hearts of those who have heard, who have read. Lord, would you begin to work a work now in someone in here who may not know Jesus Christ, have a relationship, have faith, you move in that direction for him. Lord, I thank you for what only you can do, and that's die so that we may live. In Jesus' name, amen.